0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized today's event. I'm happy to welcome back A.J. Bain. We had him here a year and a half or so ago for the accidental president, uh, his last book. This time we have him here virtually from his home. And uh, we're going to talk about his new book about the 1948 election. So we're going back 72 years to another election year. And you're going to be amazed at exactly how similar it sounds in some ways. In other ways, very different, but in some ways. One of the different is the politicians were all younger uh, than they are today. So that's one big difference. But, uh, A.J., take it away and uh, tell us uh, about, about the overview of the book. Just, just a very good read, by the way. Very good read.
0: Well, thank you. I want to just say a couple of things first. Thank you so much for having me. The Commonwealth Club is a wonderful place to be. And uh, it, it, here we are, we're doing this virtually. A lot of people are going through a lot of pain and suffering. I know for myself, books have been, uh, I'm just reminding why I fell in love with reading when I was six years old, because books can really transport you to another time and place. And for me, during all of this, that's been a blessing. Regarding my last time I was with you, I'd already started this book. Uh, that was back in 2017 when I was with you, I think, to talk about the accidental president. And uh, I, I planned this book to come out in during the, 2020 election cycle, because I thought, okay, this is a book about the 1948 election, who we he defeats Truman. It will be relevant, and it will give me an opportunity to talk about things that matter. But two things happened that I didn't expect. One is during the research, I found a whole bunch of material I really didn't expect to find. And secondly, elements in our life conspired in such a way that it feel, it, it began to feel as I was writing the book that everything I was writing about was no longer taking place in 1948. It was taking place now, so I want to show you just a few pictures to, to uh, give you an idea, a concrete idea of what I'm talking about. So 1948 is the first election to play out on the television machine. And here we are, a new kind of media is going to change the way elections take place. And of course, today we have social media doing the exact same thing. In 1948, there was a massive surge in white nationalism in the United States. Now, in 1948, there was a massive wave of violence against African-Americans. This is a man named Isaac Woodard. Four hours after he was released, honorably discharged from the United States Army, had served in World War II, he had an altercation with a white police officer, and he was blinded. And he became a cause celeb. Here you see him being escorted by Joe Lewis, the heavyweight fighter. Orson Welles got fired from his radio show for speaking out for Isaac Woodard. The whole story of, of of what happened to him became politicized and became part of the political conversation in a way that we're feeling exactly the same way, way now with George Floyd. Mm-hmm. Okay, the Alger Hiss, the story breaks during the 1948 election. Suddenly, there's so much talk in Washington and people all over the country trying to figure out, is there a communist conspiracy infiltrating Washington? What is a fact? What is a conspiracy theory. These are the conversations that they were having in Washington and all over the country among the electorate in 1948. Certainly that feels relevant today.
1: Mm-hmm. Too relevant.
0: I know. Here you have, okay, the FBI on the trail of a major presidential political co- candidate with regard to a possible Russian conspiracy. Here's Henry Wallace. Such a fascinating picture, by the way. I find myself, I can look at this picture forever. There's so much to see. But was Wallace a stooge for the Kremlin in Moscow, was he? Hmm. Now we know he wasn't. But again, this was the conversation in 1948, and certainly that's relevant today. Yeah. Now this is the Berlin Airlift. So during the 1948 election cycle, Truman launches the Berlin Airlift. This is not an apples-to-apples comparison, but during the election cycle in '48. We were nose-to-nose with the Soviets on the brink of World War III. Fear and anxiety really gripped the country. And that is happening in our election cycle now for a completely different reason. And that is exactly the reason why I'm talking to you from my basement office and not on a stage. A couple more to go. Now, this is one picture that should not feel relevant today. And we should all cross our fingers and toes that it remains that way. It's amazing to think that during the 1948 election cycle, Nuclear bombs are literally going off as we're testing larger and larger weapons in the Pacific. And ultimately, we get to Harry Truman. Now, one thing I want to make, one last point before I start uh, very briefly talking about the candidates in 48, Mm -hmm. I want to give you one quote from the most surprising document I found through all my years of research. This is a Republican National Committee memorandum written November 15th, 1947, so just about exactly a year before the forty-eight election. I'm going to give you one sentence. The United States of America is fair game for Moscow and has been for years. And as far as anyone's willing to see, the year 1948 will be the year in which Soviet Russia will do everything in its power to influence the election here. Certainly that feels familiar. Yes. Now, uh, I'm going to give you a brief introduction of the four candidates and our conversation is going to begin. Um, what I really wanted to do with this book is follow all four candidates through their campaign odysseys. In real time, to weave them out so the reader could really experience what America was experiencing, but also the candidates themselves, the America they were seeing, all leading up to this climactic moment on, on uh, November 2nd, 1948. So here's Henry Wallace. Now, Wallace was an extraordinary candidate who won no states, but his story is fascinating. We can learn a lot from it. Mm-hmm. Now, Wallace was the one candidate breaks away from the Democrats and says, hey, we have this new Cold War And it's not the Soviets' fault. It's Harry Truman's fault. And he says, there's only one man in this country who can stop World War III, and that's me. So he becomes a candidate of protest. And to me, he's really the beginning of an anti-establishment movement that goes right through the 1950s and 60s. You can see on the left here, that's Pete Seeger singing. And um, Mm -hmm. we certainly heard a lot from him in the future. Wallace's politics were so controversial. When he goes to campaign in the South, he says... I will not speak in any hall where an African-American and a Caucasian-American can't sit next to each other. I will not stay in an, any hotel where an African-American is not permitted. So when he gets in the South, there are riots, a stabbing. He's routinely pelted with tomatoes. It was a very brave campaign that he ran.
1: Even but- as vice president uh, going into uh, going through the, just to go through the colored entrance to a church. Was, was got in a physical altercation, a violent one with the police trying to stop him. And he was a U.S. senator. That's, that, that was an amazing detail.
0: Glenn Taylor. And you could actually see him in that previous picture. And it's amazing to think that there were times during those rallies where Wallace would stand in front of crowds that were heckling him and throwing eggs at him and saying, I want some evidence that I am in the United States of America. Mm-hmm. Okay. Strom Thurmond. Now, during the 1940 election, Truman was the first presidential candidate to really go after the Afri- African-American vote. Mm-hmm. He segregates the military. He becomes the first president to address the NAACP and the first president to hold a campaign rally in Harlem, the spiritual home of black America. Not everybody is happy about this. So Strom Thurmond, war hero, governor of South Carolina, launches heads up this new Dixiecrat party. They, this is their national convention in which he's nominated to run for president. And I'm going to give you one brief quote from what he's actually saying in this moment. On this night, he says, I want to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that there's not enough troops in the army to force the Southern people to break down segregation and admit the Negro race into our theaters, into our swimming pools, into our homes, and into our churches. He wins four states on that platform of uh, pro-segregation white supremacy. And finally, Thomas Dewey. Whom everybody believes is about to become the first Republican president in 16 years. We're going to talk about him quite a bit, so I'm going to not say much now, except for this. This is the one time that the two candidates meet during the election cycle, and uh, Harry Truman leans over and says, "Tom, when you move into the White House, do something about the plumbing, will you?"
1: Yeah. <laughs> Actually, yeah. Because there were real there were real issues with the White House, right?
0: There were. There were. There were in fact, the White House was literally crummy. <laughs> Crumbling, I should say. Okay, and back to Truman. So we're going to talk a lot about him. So why don't we start our conversation? Mm-hmm. And uh, I hope that was useful.
1: That's great. Okay, so um, we can um, put up the uh, Truman, I mean, the, the uh, pictures. Uh, we can start with Dewey. Um, I see that there's one over there. Great. So Thomas Dewey, uh, New York governor, uh, young, right? Uh, in his mid-40s, something like that, when he was running. Um, He'd already been governor before. He had he he did what Giuliani, well, Giuliani obviously imitated him, but he took the road to public power that Giuliani tried to to do, which was to be uh, an attorney general, attack the mafia, uh, win cases, uh, then go on, you know, either to to New York prominence, in this case, uh, New York uh, governor for a while. And uh, I, I know that Giuliani played the Dewey uh, card because uh, when, when he was attorney general, he came to speak in, in New York at a place, and, and he made it very clear he was, he was going to play exactly the same political thing because Giuliani had his eye on the White House, as everyone knows. He's only got the back room of the White House right now, but, <laughs> but he does get to go there. <laughs> so uh, in any case, so Thomas Dewey, quite a character, and he had been a, an attack dog, as you said, earlier on when he ran. But he ran a very different campaign, so maybe talk, talk about a little bit about that. And, and he was 30 points ahead, something like that, at the beginning of the campaign.
0: Well, Dewey was, a, to me, I was, I was very fascinated at how fascinating I found him. Um, I thought he was going to be a byproduct of the story, a minor character. He's not. He's very much a major character in the story that I wrote, because the way that he came up into prominence was so extraordinary. He's from a small town, comes out of nowhere, Michigan, comes down and becomes – Uh, a a young prosecutor in New York City and finds himself on this trail, brilliant prosecutor, brilliant lawyer, and he becomes this figure who takes down the mafia in the 1930s during the Depression when there was a lot of mafia around. And he became Mm -hmm. so famous as a prosecutor. How does that happen? That uh, in two different movies, he was portrayed by Humphrey Bogart on the big screen. People used Mm -hmm. to say that Thomas Dewey could successfully prosecute God. That's how he came up and became famous, just like Giuliani. Yeah. So by the time 1948 came, he had already been. This is his third presidential candidate because he had been the guy that everybody said all the way back in 1940. You're the you are the future of the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. And by the time 1948 comes, he's he he decides he's not going to run because he ran in 1944 and he lost. He came closer to defeating FDR than anybody did, but he felt in his heart that he didn't want to suffer through losing. A presidential election twice and he had to be convinced to run and so his story becomes very sympathetic
1: mm-hmm. yeah and he obviously uh, everyone thought I mean, I mean your book is very clear that everyone thought all the media for example you said all the newspapers predicted that he was going to win every, every single no, not a single newspaper predicted that truman was going to win in the country something like that or at least none of the major ones so the media was all on his side and they spent time afterwards wondering why they got it all wrong, just like, you know, people in the media have done that in the 2016 election. How, how did we get that wrong sort of thing with, with the polls and everything? And polls, polls were just starting then. I think that was another element that you, you, you at least their, their influence, uh, I'm sure they had polls before that, but that they became much more influential. So well,
0: in the era of like just as media, more media feels big to us right now, at that time, the fact that radio was becoming ubiquitous, the communication industry was really ramping up. So pollsters were extraordinarily powerful. And one of them actually wrote in his, they had newspaper columns. He said, I'm not going to have polls anymore because this is, it's a pointless. Why spend the money even on having a campaign Dewey was going to win? And mm-hmm. I can tell you that there were two scenes for me writing about Dewey that were so touching. And the one is where on election night, no, I'll go back. Um, uh, he he The night he holds his final campaign rally in Madison Square Garden, um, he gets on a train afterward to take the train back up to Albany, to the governor's mansion, and he's so sure he's going to win, he holds an impromptu meeting among all these reporters who had been rec- covering his campaign for months, and he tells them who's going to be in his cabinet, and he says "You can't tell anybody. Here's going to be the Secretary of State. Here's going to be the Secretary of Treasury, because he was sure he was going to win. Mm-hmm. The other scene I can remember that was just so touching to me was on election night, he's in his suite at the Hotel Roosevelt with his family and his friends. And at some point, the night is not going as planned. And he locks himself in a room with a yellow legal pad by himself. And he just listens to the returns on the radio all night long and slowly realizes what's about to happen to him.
1: Yeah. Yeah, solitary man on that edge. Um, he, He definitely... He definitely left his mark anyway um, on the Republican Party. I mean, he was very influential. He was a progressive Republican. I think that's a, that another element that I thought was a, a very Machiavellian move that you talk about that Truman does, is that the Republicans, right after their convention, they they picked Dewey. But it was a it was a tight race, and there was a, he was a progressive. Teddy Roosevelt type Republican, and then uh, Taft, who was the uh, uh, the son, or, right, or the son of the president Taft, he was the leader of the conservatives, and a lot of people thought he should be the nominee. Um, so there was very close, but the conservative Republicans were in control of the Congress. So what Truman did was uh, the platforms between Dewey's platform and Truman's platform were almost identical. That's what you wrote, right? That's About, right. Now. And so he, really? he, he put a he put a, a pin in this by calling Congress back to try to enact Dewey's platform. I, I thought that was
0: brilliant. Now, we're going to show we're going to talk about the Democratic National Convention. And I think we're going to show a little piece of video. So we're going to come back to okay. we'll the come second back to part of what you said. But I think you raised a really wonderful, interesting point mm-hmm. um, Coming out of World War II, it was as if there were a line in the sand. Everybody understood that this election was going to be a line between the past and the future. The post-war world was shaping up and which political party was going to be in charge and imprint their vision on America. And both political parties coming out of World War II had to really figure out who they were and what they stood for. And the Republicans had an interesting situation because they had a rivalry within the party. There was the conservative faction that was run by, that was really headed up by Robert Taft, Mr. Mm -hmm. Republican on Capitol Hill, and Dewey, who was a liberal. He was a liberal with a Republican's name because he had been raised to think that Teddy Roosevelt was the definition of the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. And so um, at the Republican, even through the primaries, the Oregon primary. Fascinating story. Dewey, it was the front runner all along. and All of a sudden he's about to lose this, you know, through Harold Stassen comes up this dark horse and all of a sudden they're neck and neck and Oregon primary is going to decide it. And they have the first ever, ever broadcast radio presidential debate. And it's kind of neat because you can look it up and you can watch it. You well listen to it on YouTube today. Mm -hmm. There was only one question. Should communism be outlawed and Dewey of course being a prosecutor kicked his bleep and won the nomination mm-hmm. so that that's how it happened but a lot of the Republicans were very uncomfortable with his platform because a lot of it agreed with Harry Truman
1: yeah so we'll we'll, we'll come back to Harry Truman's maneuver against that um but uh but anyway they, they they both did the same thing they both did these whistle stop uh, tours everywhere and they were crossing each other's paths and so on although Although Truman had a very good joke about that, um, that 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 Dewey was following him everywhere, but he won't be able to follow him. All right? You, you want to tell that joke?
0: Sure. At the at the, at the end of the campaigns, um, it came down to this amazing one-two punch where they sit, visited the same five cities, each of them one after the other. Chicago, Cleveland, Boston, New York. And by that, I mean four cities. Yeah. So during one of those campaigns, um, Dewey had followed Truman throughout the country, and during one of them, it turned out to be uh, the first daughter, Margaret's favorite speech of the campaign, where mm-hmm. Truman starts cracking these jokes, and he does it on live national radio, mm-hmm. totally off the cup, cuff. He makes up this story of, like, well, there's this guy following me everywhere I go, and he mm-hmm. talks the whole story about, he's following me, he's following there's one place he's not going to follow me, and the crowd goes crazy, you know? <laughs> <laughs> the thing I can say is that if you... The Truman Library website is an amazing resource be, because you can go there and you can actually listen to these speeches. They are all up on the website. And so they're fascinating. They're a lot of fun to listen to.
1: Yeah, it brings them alive when their voices are there, too. It's, it's kind of interesting seeing the old pictures, but in the old pictures, it's kind of strange because they, they don't look the same as politicians do today. They don't seem like they act the same. And, and as I said, uh, they look so young, relatively speaking, right now. Anyway, uh, one, one uh, little personal note about Dewey. Uh, at the end of the book, when you, you, you bring everybody up to date on the epilogue of, of different people, you mentioned that Dewey, when he lost, that, that he returned to the governor's mansion in New York and was there for another six years and then went into private life uh, and didn't do any more public uh, service stuff. And uh, he, he, what he did was he went to a New York law firm as the name partner. Uh, there was an old law firm from 1906 on uh, Ballantyne, Bushby, Palmer and Wood, and he got put on the head of that, Dewey, Ballantyne, Bushby, Palmer & Wood, which became a very famous firm. I actually, that's where I started my legal career in 1984, and I worked for a partner who was in his early 50s, and he he had done some work for Dewey when Dewey was running the place. Dewey had died in 71, I think, as you mentioned, 71, so this was about 13 years later. And one day we were chatting about something after we'd worked together for six months, and the partner said to me, you know, he said, that Dewey really scared the hell out of me. He said, Said, you know, I was uh, when when I was in my ninth year. So he was; he should have been made a partner right around then. So he was up for partner, and he Dewey asked me to do a special tax memo on an issue I didn't know anything about, and and I'm not a tax lawyer; I'm a corporate lawyer. But he asked me to do this, so I had to. Do it. So I did this memo, and I did it very quickly, and I got it all done, and it was like a 20-page thing. I said, and I gave it to him as he was walking out the door to go to Florida to fly down to Florida for the weekend, and that weekend. He died of a heart attack, and I've always wondered whether my memo was so bad that it gave him a heart attack.
0: <laughs> Crazy to be laughing so hard about someone's demise, but yes, he played yeah. golf with the Boston Red Sox slugger Carl Yastrzemski. They played mm-hmm. golf, and he was getting ready to go to the airport to fly to Washington so he could go to the engagement party of Richard Nixon's daughter in the White House on that day. That's what was happening.
1: Yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> So he, he, there were all kinds of other stories, which I won't bring up, uh, inside the firm about the way that he ran the firm. But he clearly, he clearly took it out on the law firm that he wasn't president. That was the way everybody saw, saw, it, saw it. Should we switch to Truman now? Who's that? Who's that? <laughs> Good. There we go. So Truman, you... you, you uh, You wrote The the last time we talked, uh, you had a book, The Accidental President, and you talked about how he got into the position to become the president, of course, as vice president under FDR. And it's a very unusual story. You covered it there, but maybe a little bit of background uh, so that people have an idea about where this guy came from and why. As As a person, I looked it up, it was very interesting. He had the highest popularity rating of any president ever, and he's also had the lowest. So it was like 91 right after World War II ended in August with Japanese. And it was as low as 22. 22 was not ever reached by any, I mean, Trump has never gone below 30. You know, George W. Bush went down to about 25, but Truman was down at 22. So I think that gives people a little bit of idea of how unpopular he got at certain points. So maybe a little background on what he did.
0: Sure. So I, I would just encourage people to just start by looking at the picture. This is the one, of, one of the most dramatic pictures that I've ever seen in my life. Now, what you're seeing here is Harry Truman taking the presidential oath. He speaks 35 words He becomes the most powerful man in the world. Um, And this is what my book, The Accidental President, is about. It was very much a mistake that he was the vice president in the first place. He was never supposed to be the vice president. It takes a lot of time in the book to explain that. It's a very exciting story. Mm -hmm. So here he is. He realizes when he becomes vice president that President Roosevelt is very sick. Most people understand that what is happening. And uh, Truman is the vice president. And he's never been the mayor of a city, never governor of a state never had the money to own his own home, no college degree. And he really has no idea what's going on in the White House. And 82 days into this new regime, FDR dies of a cerebral hemorrhage in Warm Springs, Georgia. And Truman finds out about this. He's rushed to the White House. He takes those, this is what you're looking at here, standing to his left is Bess. To the left is Margaret, first daughter, his only child. And uh, he becomes the president of the United States very much by accident, and those are his words. Now, right after this picture is taken, He's ushered into a room with Henry Stipson, who is secretary of war. And the secretary says, oh, by the way, we have the secret. We have to. This is the climactic months of World War Two. Oh, by the way, we have the secret we have to tell you about. But I can't tell you what it is. So he goes home to his tiny little apartment on Connecticut Avenue and he's exhausted and terrified. He has a ham sandwich with a glass of buttermilk and goes to bed. And one thing about Truman, he was remarkable. He was remarkably talented at being able to sleep during terrific um, moments of pressure. So he goes to sleep and this, there's this poignant moment where he wakes up in the middle of the night that night and the, and best Truman, who is now the first lady of the United States never wanted to be, never wanted to even live in Washington. He wakes up in the middle of the night looks over and she's sitting on a bed. Of course they had separate beds and she's sobbing hysterically. And he's like, Oh man, this is going to be tough. So the next four months He unites the nation. We win the war and everything is going great. And he's this amazing story of this man who comes out of nowhere and unites America and wins the blah, blah, blah. So then all of a sudden he has to be the president at a time when the country is moving into peacetime. This is nothing goes right, but nothing would have gone right no matter who was president. Right given the the amount of turmoil that had to happen economically in terms of migration of of, of Americans, all of this stuff, it just wasn't going to work. And Americans are immediately like, this guy's a loser. We want him out. They're tired of the Democratic Party. They're tired of the New Deal. And Truman digs in and says, no, we're going to continue with the New Deal, but we're going to make it more liberal. We're going to even bring it to the left. And people freak out. And so by the time the 1948 election uh, approaches, Everybody thinks his his presidency is toast. So,
1: Well, it's interesting that in the midterm election in 46, he had already lost uh, the, the confidence of people and the uh, Republicans took over both the Congress and the Senate. And, and one of the details that I, I don't know if this was a commonly known detail, but I had never heard of it, but that Senator Fulbright, another famous character, went to Truman. Who, Fulbright was a Democrat, went to Truman and said, I want you to appoint a Republican vice president and then resign so that we have a Republican president that can work with this Congress because the the country's in such chaos, we really can't do anything else. What an uh, outstandingly interesting (laughs) idea to hand to somebody. from your own party, you know.
0: It makes you ask the question, can you imagine today if somebody came to Donald Trump and said, well, the House of Representatives is a Democrat so you should resign a Democratic vice president right. so that the country's in unison. Can you imagine that today? But that's kind of what happened. So, of course, Truman comes up with this thing where he says, I'm not going to do that. But Americans took it so seriously. He had to put a press release out saying, I'm not doing that. And he called Senator Fulbright, Senator
1: Halfbright. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you have some of Trump's skill with naming. <laughs> but uh, but. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine if Donald was told to make Hillary Clinton his vice president, so that she could become the president, exactly what kind of day we would have with tweeting that night. Okay, so that's that's how he's now he's president. Take us through a couple. I mean, he he met so many. It wasn't just the the economic issues at home, so the the international issues, how to deal with the Russians, you know, uh, how to deal with are they were our allies or they're our recent allies who who people argued about at that time. Are they gonna be our allies? There was a, a, one, one of his, uh, you, you said that, told the story, I think it was Stimson, who suggested that we share the atomic uh, secrets with the Russians to develop trust because they're gonna figure them out anyway. They're gonna steal them or whatever anyway. So should we have this? I mean, that, that's some of the other extraordinary proposals that were being made at the time. People really didn't, weren't settled into the Cold War mentality yet
0: no but it increasingly felt like a like a wartime ro- Washington but yeah. there was the situation of Israel what we were you know Israel was about to be born as a country and truman had to figure out what to do if was he going to support the jews the jews were clamoring for support from the administration but the state department was and the defense department were saying african americans mm-hmm. were demanding support from truman the southern uh, very powerful senators and governors were saying no civil rights uh, and, of course, the Cold War these were unsolvable situations that i don 't think any president could have handled, but truman was happened to be in the White House, and he took the brunt of the blame
1: and he made i mean George Marshall, I think was in charge of the the State Department, and he being very influential I mean with the Marshall Plan and everything else and he was against the the uh supporting Israel for lots of political reasons i mean there were there were a lot of rational reasons for going against. What we now consider gut instinct, of course you would do civil rights, and of course you would support Israel. I mean, that's the way it's thought of later on. But it was certainly not the the framework or the the context in which he made his decisions.
0: Well, think about the Israel situation by itself. Mm -hmm. After World War II, I believe six million Jews died in the camps. And the camps were being liberated at the end of the war while Truman was president. And so Hitler's darkest secret really came to the fore while Truman was president people were shocked, and people really wanted to support a Jewish homeland. A lot of people in America, a lot of people didn't care. Mm -hmm. Now, Truman was in this situation where there were a lot of powerful, wealthy, democratic donors who were Jewish were to say, we're not going to support your campaign if you don't support the the founding of this Jewish nation. The State Department and the Defense Department were saying, no way, we're going to have a war with the Soviets, and we have this relationship with all these Arab nations. So 1948 was actually the first year that we imported more oil than we produced ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so if we offended these Arab nations, they were not going to sell us oil at a decent price, and we were going to need it because there was going to be a war. And another issue that he faced with regards to this was just the economics of it all, because people were sure that if we – the only way that we were going to support Israel and Israel was going to be founded is if we sent in American troops to help this country be formed – And otherwise, Israel would never, they wouldn't survive a war with the Arabs. And Mm -hmm. so Truman was really in a very difficult situation. He finally decides, heck with it, I'm going to support this, 90% of it at least. Mm -hmm. He, he, you know, (laughs) he makes his decision and the buck stops here. And that's the way it was going to be. But it became Mm -hmm. very much an issue during the election, which is complicated, but we can talk about
1: it. Yeah. So why don't we move forward to the election where the the book is all about the, the process of it.
0: Yeah. So this is a Democratic National Convention. This is one of my favorite moments Now Truman comes in and every, there's literally people walking around with signs that say Eisenhower for president because nobody thinks Truman can win. <laughs> the night before, there's this whole debacle where all of the Southern white senators raise this huge protest and walk out and abandon Truman. Uh, saying, well, we're going to form our own political party. So by the time Truman comes in and he has to make a speech at the Democratic National Convention, the situation is a disaster. And he gives this amazing speech that ignites the hall. It's incredible.
1: Yeah, the the uh, way you write that up in the book is just great. I mean, you, you capture the excitement and it's two o'clock in the morning and some people are already gone and don't even realize what happened. And he, he, he turns it around and gets people on his side, obviously. And uh, crucial because he was down by 30 points or something, right?
0: Well, just a point on that, um, it was the first televised – these conventions, both Republicans, which happened about three weeks before, and the Democrats, these were the first national political presidential conventions that were televised. Mm -hmm. But by the time Truman got on stage, it was so late because things were so delayed that uh, all the television people had gone home, so it wasn't televised. (laughs) And there's this amazing moment where what Truman did was really remarkable. This takes a little bit of explaining. I'll try to do this very clearly and very concisely. So he he recognizes that the, Dem- the the Republican platform is tricky. The Republicans adopt a liberal Republican platform saying mm-hmm. we want to do this, 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 this is Dewey's plan. But the 80th Congress is controlled by conservative Republicans who aren't going to enact any of that. So mm-hmm. what Truman does is he walks up on stage and saying, I demand an emergency session of Congress where you guys should enact all the stuff that Dewey wants to do, because those are the things that he wanted done. <laughs> right? And so the Republicans are suddenly like, oh, no, what are we going to do? And the crowds go wild. They figure out what he's done.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, he basically drives a stake right into the identity crisis that is plaguing the Republican Party in 1948. And after he gives the speech, there's this moment where um, this woman named, uh, I forget her name, but anyway, she comes out and she does this thing that nobody expected to do. She releases 50 doves into the, into, into the um, hall because she thinks this is going to be a dramatic moment. But right. there are these air conditioners whirl- whirling above, and all these birds, and everybody's freaking out that these birds are going to get killed. And <laughs> and uh, you can hear Sha- Sam Rayburn, the former Speaker of the House, yelling, "Get those bleeps out of here!" You can <laughs> <think you're laughs> hear it on the radio broadcast. Yeah, <laughs> That's what, yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I, what a great uh, Machiavellian move, and it, it did. The, he uh, people probably don't realize it. it's in your book, of course, but the Congress had already. Uh, you know, uh, set, you know, stopped its uh, sessions and wasn't going to meet again until after the election. This was uh, July or so, but they weren't planning on meeting again until, until, uh, November. But he That's called right. them back. He, he called them all back to, to they were all out going to campaign for the next six months or whatever. So that was, and they didn't do anything right. He, he, he predicted it accurately. They, nothing got done.
0: He called it the turn, the turnip day session. Turnip Day. And he had his own reason, because in Missouri, there was a certain time of year where the turnips were were harvested. And he later said that the only thing that the special uh, session of Congress did was up the sales of turnips.
1: (laughs) All right. So uh, what do we have next? Yeah, there we go.
0: So we have some pictures of this, the Truman campaign. If I can just talk a little bit. Sure. Talk about the campaign. Okay. so Truman realizes he can't win. And so he devises this plan to do – he can't win unless he's – he does something totally unexpected and creates a presidential campaign any, unlike anything that had ever been done. And he plans to break every rule that he possibly can. And really what it comes down to is he creates this situation where he goes around and he visits hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of towns where no president had ever campaigned, small towns all over the country. He gets on this train, and his idea is, if we can expose everyday Americans to the magic of the presidency, and if I can talk to people face-to-face, they'll understand what I'm saying, they'll believe in me, and they'll vote for me. And so he creates this um, secret research department in DuPont Circle in Washington, D.C. He sets up a team of speechwriters in the White House, and the speechwriters are going to write the big speeches for the huge rallies, but everything else these research people are going to write all this stuff down on note cards, and an airplane is going to fly in every three or four days to wherever the train is coming in, give the, hand over these briefcases, so that when Truman shows up in some little town, he can say, okay, I know you just, have a new, you just built a new sausage factory, or there's a war hero that's passed away, or you have a new mayor. And so he would have some information to use to start an off-the-cuff speech that he could use to connect with these people. And then he would just speak off the cuff about patriotism and decency and honor. And um, so that's basically, that's how it worked. And in the process, he became really more than a presidential candidate. He becomes an American folk hero.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I thought it was, it was interesting how he began by giving speeches that were all written for him and, and just uh, to do it in the normal way. And then ended up throwing more and more of that out and just talking off the top of his head uh, about what was on his mind. And, and that that was what was effective.
0: Well, he was really not, he didn't have the, the orating skills that FDR had. So when he began his presidency, he would have these speech writers, the same ones that Sam Rosen, Rosenman, Judge Sam Rosenman, who wrote um, FDR speeches would write these speeches for Truman, but Truman was terrible at delivering them. And mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons why his presidency went, Phew. but mm-hmm. he learned that. And if he spoke off the cuff, if he acted like an everyday American, which is exactly what he was, he could connect with people. Keep going through the slides. There's more pictures of the campaign yeah. we can see.
1: And while we're, while we're going to the next slide, um, the first question came in. And it's a good one right on this topic. Uh, it's from John Wren. And he asked, uh, Truman had only met with FDR a couple of times, but were there others in the administration who were helpful and close to him during the first 80 days uh, of, of his uh, presidency? In other words, did, did Truman get yeah. But did Truman get a lot of help from the FDR um, administration? He did.
0: He did. James Burns. He he appointed James Burns, his um, secretary of state. Burns was very pivotal. Sam Rosamond helped him write his speeches. Um, but really, one of the things a lot of I think historians have said, well, Truman, he just picked up where Roosevelt left. And, you know, he just didn't do much during the war. He did a lot. And as a matter of fact, he replaced the entire cabinet very quickly. He had a mm-hmm. new Attorney general, Tom Clark. So essentially, I think he really did create it himself. But at the beginning, yes, through the war years, there was Henry Stimson. There was James Burns, Sam Roseman. But after the war, the, the figures that really came up were young people, a lot, mostly lawyers, that he handpicked. A lot of them didn't have a t- tremendous amount of political experience. So after mm-hmm. the war ended... So when the, by the time the 1948 election comes around, his, real main, his main go-to was Clark Clifford, who wrote a lot of the speeches, was on the campaign train the entire time, and until he uh, Truman came around, really had no political experience whatsoever.
1: I thought it was very interesting to hear the start of, uh, I mean, it's always interesting when you go back into political history, and then you see someone come on stage for the first time and what their role is, in this case, Clark Clifford, because he had a big role in the 60s as well. And, you, you mentioned in another place that George McGovern was at uh, the Henry Wallace's first political campaign in, in uh, I mean, the, the uh, campaign decision-making. So I just thought that was very interesting. It's always just like watching a movie and seeing somebody who becomes a big star later, but starring in their first role in a small little thing over to the side.
0: Well, on that point, think about great
1: it, on that. Yeah.
0: all the people who came into office in 1948 who just, oh, by the way, John F. Kennedy, Joseph McCarthy. Right.
1: Nixon. Two, Nixon right? and, and Richard Nixon at the same time. So, here we have a picture, and, and it's uh, uh, during the campaign, and someone's on a horse. Who's on the horse?
0: Okay, so we don't know, but there's this amazing moment. Oh, okay. <laughs> where Truman is giving a speech on the back of his train, and there's a guy who heckles him on top of a horse. <laughs> and he comes out and he opens up, he looks at the te- horse's teeth because, you know, he had, for most of his life, he was an obscure farmer. You couldn't make uh, the. And so he looks at the horse's teeth and he says, this is not a good horse. And the guy gets pissed off and he rides away. <laughs> so just like every day of the campaign was a comedy of errors. But at the same time, it wasn't. It was very serious business. You know, th- there was definitely this feeling that the future of the world was at stake. But Truman had a good sense of humor.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, help. How about the next picture? Yeah.
0: Okay. So this is Detroit. This is a motorcade in Detroit. This is Labor Day weekend. And literally, this is when the campaign begins. And Truman shows up, and and Labor Day weekend, obviously, because Detroit, home of the automobile factories, and he has this uh, amazing rally in Cadillac Square, and right at the first weekend of the campaign, everybody in the Truman campaign, they're shocked, because there's 100,000 people turned out in the streets in Detroit. And Mm. then they get in this car, and they drive north up to Pontiac, they drive through these little towns in Michigan, and everywhere they go... There's tens of thousands of people on the street to see him. And, and he's thinking like oh, the whole all the whole campaign team. They're like, this doesn't make any sense. Everybody's saying we're going to lose. Who are all these people? And that really sets the tone for him for the campaign.
1: So now we can talk about Henry Wallace. Yes. So well, Let's talk about Henry Wallace. So Henry Wallace is the person who brings us back to Russian interference in an election. <laughs> so tell us who he is. And I mean, he was FDR's vice president. How did he end up running on a? Uh, another platform and what was that platform
0: so henry wallace is the vice president from uh d- during uh, right up to 1944 and he's pushed off the ticket very unexpectedly mm-hmm. so, during the 1944 election to make way for truman because people a lot of people thought that wallace was just a little weird he was he was very far to the left and he made a lot of people uncomfortable um he was sort of a mystic and uh so He gets pushed aside in 1944 to make way for Truman, and he's really not happy about it. He knows that he's a massive hero hero among liberal Americans. And after the war, there's this one day where he comes to the White House, and he sits down with Truman and a bunch of other people, and they sit in the White House and they have lunch, and they watch footage of an, an atomic test, atomic bomb going off. They can see it from different angles. And Wallace is completely unnerved. He's like, this is wrong. We shouldn't be doing this. Just the fact that we're setting off these atomic tests, and the Soviets don't have a bomb, and we refuse to re- share the secret with them, this is causing this new thing called the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And so Wallace eventually breaks with Truman and launches his own campaign called the, the 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 Progressive Party, and he 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 gives it a nickname. He names it the uh, Gideon's Army. It's a biblical term. It's a very Christian man,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and. Um, You know, I've talked a little bit er, er, earlier about what his campaign stood for. But there are these poignant moments where he he was able to connect with people on the coast. He's really indicative of something that's really important that's going on now. He would hold rallies in New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, these liberal bastions, Mm -hmm. and people would go wild. He would pack stadiums, the biggest political rallies that anybody had ever seen. And a lot of young people and a lot of celebrities, Paul Robeson and... W.D.E.B. Du Bois and black Americans and Jewish Americans and intellectuals uh, loved Wallace. But then he would go into the American heartland and there would be riots. People wanted to murder the guy Mm -hmm. because they were so uncomfortable. We're seeing that same kind of division in America today.
1: And the same groups of people, uh, Mm -hmm. ironically. Um,
0: same geography as well.
1: Same geography as well. Yeah, some things. It's amazing how much we just kind of shift the terms, shift uh, some of the things, but the basic underlying emotional issues remain the same about what people are comfortable with and what they're not. But the, So uh, one of the things I found interesting was your story about uh, the Moscow newspapers covering his triumph in New York and so on. And it, it reminded me so much of an inauguration in, in 2017. So,
0: Well, that's an important point. Wallace was so far to the left and he... he brought together this grassroots campaign and shockingly the people who were running his campaign were very aligned with the communist party of the united states Mm -hmm. and they all they wrote memoirs later and did oral histories and explained exactly what they were doing Mm -hmm. so um it was extraordinarily controversial during the early days of the cold war that you have this very popular in some places presidential candidate who everybody knew his platform mirrored the communist party's platform Mm people very upset. Um, but one of the things I really want to say about Wallace is, it fascinated me is the whole idea that after all of this happened, he was so sure that Truman was going to lead us to war years later when all, you know, he, he, he loses terribly. Um, he's humiliated in the election fades into oblivion, but he later writes a book and says, you know what? I was wrong.
1: Mm-hmm. And he
0: actually supports Truman when Truman sends troops into Korea. Mm-hmm. And, um, he support ends up supporting Truman and other things, and he ends up realizing that you know what I was wrong. The Soviets are the bad guys. So yeah. there's the
1: yeah, an interesting time to change uh, uh, your opinion because he did it right during the McCarthy uh, era when when this was such a big issue, and he and he wasn't disavowing his past or anything like that. He was just saying no, that 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 was an inaccurate thing that that actually Moscow is not operating on a. On, on a basis that we can deal with, so that's Henry Wallace and the Progressive Party. Then we have a fourth party, right? And this is Strom Thurmond. So tell us the story. I mean, so, so Strom Thurmond's a Democrat, just like just like Harry Truman, but not exactly just like Harry Truman because he's a Southern Democrat. And I think maybe it's useful not only to explain something about Strom Thurmond and what they did, but also the switch from the Democrats to the Republicans, the Southern strategy, that whole thing, because that's still with us, you know.
0: That's right. So. Strom Thurmond is fascinating to me for on so many levels and um, pivotal in American history on so many levels. So what they did, okay, one of the reasons why nobody believed Truman could win is because the Democratic Party shattered. You mm. have the left side of the party that goes with Henry Wallace. You've got the conservative part part of the party that goes with Strom Thurmond, and there's Truman. So he's lost a whole bunch of voters right there. Now what Thurmond was doing, he they launched this Dixiecrat party. In opposition to Truman's civil rights program, it's pure and simple. White supremacy in the South is the way it's always been. That's the way the Thurman family always was. Strom Thurman's father was supposed to be, again, this is something you can't make up. He had he was supposed to be uh, a governor of South Carolina, and his political career was derailed over a political argument. And he shot and killed a man when Thurman was a young boy. And so Strom Thurman's father becomes... The lawyer for a man named Pitchfork Ben Tillman. And Pitchfork Ben Tillman was this figure who really united the uh, Democratic Party in the South as the party of, of racism and white supremacy and um, disenfranchisement, disenfranchisement of, of African-American voters. So Thurman grew up with this. So when Truman launches the civil rights thing, Thurman's like, no way, I'm going to fight and mm-hmm. so he becomes the head of the Dixiecrat Party. On the face of it, they, they're really called the States' Rights Democratic Party, and their theory is federal government should not be able to tell states what our rules are in our state. And in our state, there's white supremacy. In our state, black people are not allowed to vote. That's mm-hmm. his. That's his theory. And so right. he launches this incredible campaign, but um, of course, he he has secrets of his own.
1: Yes, he does. And uh, those secrets came out in public in 2005. But it, it was interesting to me, especially because um, sort of coming uh, you know, into a political awareness in the early 60s, he, he was a very influential figure uh, of racism at that time. I mean, he would always stand up for it. He, was a, he had become a senator since and, and a powerful senator. And, and he was this increasingly old senator. Um, you, you mentioned that he was the only senator that, that was still a senator at the age of 100, right? And, and in addition to that, he had young wives. All along. I don't remember how many he had, but he was—he always had much younger wives and was making children for a while. And, but it—it it, was—he was just an interesting character all around, even up against LBJ. You know, I mean, LBJ was the president at the time, and it, it just—but it—it wasn't aware. I mean, it had disappeared that he had been, the, at least in the popular notion, in just 15 or 20 years, it had disappeared that he had run on this platform in 1948 of total white supremacy. I mean, he was known as a racist, but not that far. So I, I found it fascinating to read his backstory.
0: Well, a couple of thoughts there. I, I, I'm very careful in the book to make sure that people understand when they're reading that the decisions that people were making and the campaigns and the ideas that people embraced uh, came, came in their context. So it's very, right. you, we as Americans, if you read this book today, yeah, I, you'll see that I'm very careful about understanding where he was coming from. He mm-hmm. was fighting for ideas and traditions that had been in the South for generations and generations. There's a reason why he won four states. There's right. a number of Americans that who believed what he was saying. But really, that I think from a macro point of view, it's really important to point out that all through the, the early part of the 20th century, the Democrat, there was this idea of the solid South of the Democratic Party. And that issue was built around race. It goes back to 1877, when there was a fight for the White House. That, this is a very complicated situation. But the re- reconstruction ended, and the federal government said, hey, we can move this candidate over here and make this happen, and this guy wins, and we'll move our union troops out of the South, and you states can make your own rules. And, mm-hmm. and so all of those states became you know, very segregated, and white supremacy was in place, and that, that's the way it was. But they were solidly Democrat. It was the solid South of the Democratic Party because they were anti-Party of Lincoln. Now, 1948 is really important because – That's when it all shifted. The Solid South campaigned against the civil rights program at Truman, launched their own party, and that's how they ended up, because they were conservatives politically. They're conservatives politically, theoretically, but they were aligned with the Democratic Party on this very one simple issue. So that's when it all started. That's why today it's the Solid South of the Republican Party. That may be changing.
1: It's very ironic, too, the... the, uh conclusion that was reached in the 1876 election because there was another new york governor tilden uh, at the time but he was the democrat and it was the republicans that that made the deal in order to get the republican president back in even though the republicans were giving up on why they had fought the civil war just 12 years earlier i mean you just you look at that and you go wow you know it's like did it take that short a time frame uh, you know for for the power to be more important than why you did what you did
0: well it's very that's an important point that you raise it's It's very interesting to think that decisions we make in our politics today can have effect on generations of our political parties and our voters yeah,
1: yeah. and they're all they're all valuable I mean people that's why whenever somebody comes in and, and, and uh, creates a cyclone, everyone's wondering where everything's going to fall out right because it, it really if you read history, you certainly know that the cyclones make things fall out in very very strange ways uh, so so that's Strom Thurmond, and uh, you, you tell the story near the end, since we've, we've got a little bit more time. You tell the story of his daughter. So he has a daughter from when he was a teenager, uh, right, and, and that this daughter was half African-American. And he, yeah, so maybe tell that story, because that's a public story, but it's also very interesting, especially his relationship with her, because it does seem to be paternal and, and, and caring and attentive for that kind of circumstance.
0: I, I agree with you. So throughout this story where he's campaigning on this white supremacist issue and he has a daughter that he fathered with an African-American woman. And it's a secret. Nobody knows it. And he is very caring for her. He takes care of her financially. But there's this she uh, after he dies, she writes a memoir of what happened. And it's such a moving moment where he ends up losing the election. But she follows this election through and she hears the things that he's saying Negroes have no right to be in our swimming pools in our churches. You know They shouldn't be voting, this, these kinds of things. And her name is Essie May, and she had just married another African-American man. And they're seeing this and listening to it on the radio. And it's fascinating. This poor woman, she's married to an African-American man who has no idea that Strom Thurmond is her father. And right. they're listening to this, these campaign speeches on the radio. She, she writes this very moving memoir. But um, at the end of the story, after he loses – they meet, and she says, "How can you say those things? Why would you do that? How do you really feel?" And he explains to her that uh, from where he comes from, these are tradi- these are American traditions. This is the way American is supposed America is supposed to be. He says nobody loves and cares for the Negro race more than me. That's what he says. I'm not. I'm using the Negro race for right. his, in his words. Right. And um, it's a very poignant moment, but um, you know, because it's just the- sort of inexplicable. There's there's
1: there's actually the reason I like that story and and what it is, is it gives us some hope that a a certain amount of the hatred and a certain amount of the animosity is really performative as people like to say now, or or, or for show. Uh, there's a great uh, scene in Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain where he talks about a lynching and a lynching mob and they they can be talked out of it fairly easy because very few of the people actually want to do the lynching, but almost all of them have to do what the whole crowd is doing. And, uh, you know, I think you can see the same thing about what's going on now. I mean, most of the protesters don't want to loot. Most of the protesters, but when things start, a lot of people will do things that they weren't really planning on doing if they're in a crowd all doing one thing, which is, of course, where the idea of having some kind of order helps. But it's, it's, it gives you hope about whatever progress we can make if 90% of the people that are shouting something really don't believe what they're shouting.
0: I agree. That's where leadership comes in. If one person yeah. in that crowd says, Hey, wait a minute, let's not do this,
1: things will change. Yeah. And that exactly exactly the point. There's some other stories in history about one where one person says something, stops the whole crowd from doing something really stupid. And uh, so so let's elect some leaders that <laughs> will do that. <laughs> which is which is interesting how you, you, you go through this election year. Uh, because it doesn't seem like Truman has got any chance. As he said, what did he say to, uh, he, he said to one person when his wife was there, there are only two people who believe that I was going to win. Yeah, I love that story. Why don't you tell, tell that Truman story?
0: I'll tell that this quick story and I'll answer your question in the process. So sure is the 80th Congress that the Republican Party is about to take power for the first time in so many years in the White House, that um, they vote in a, a new plan to up the budget of the inauguration festivities to an unheard of $80,000. So when Truman gets elected, he's got this unprecedented huge budget to spend inauguration day party and he can see what fun they're having. So what Truman is in the middle to his left is vice president Alvin Barkley to his right, all the way by the American flag is the first daughter, Margaret. And um, they're, they're having quite a good time.
1: But spending, spending night, the money the Republicans thought they were going to spend on Dewey, right?
0: Exactly. <laughs> so on election night, when he wins, uh, there's a woman named India Edwards, who is who is this wonderful, very charismatic and powerful um, woman, uh, sort of, I would say the high ranking woman in the Democratic National Committee at the time. Mm-hmm. And so when he wins, it, it's well known that Truman's wife didn't think he could win, so she they they sit together and they say and, and Harry says there there's only he it's it's Harry, his wife and India. And he says, there's only two two people who thought I could win this election. And my wife is not one of them. one of them.
1: <laughs> That's great. The media predicted every single newspaper in the country predicted Truman would lose. The pollsters all thought that Truman would lose and not just by a little bit, but like a, a shoe in sort of situation. So they all had to. Eat Crow, there was an Eat Crow story, uh, right, from one of the, one of the Washington papers. The Washington Post, sent, uh, uh, he invited Truman to a dinner with, where they were going to serve crow, <laughs> and they were going to eat it. Or, yeah, That's an old expression, right? So I don't know if people still know that expression, to eat crow. Why don't no. you explain it, that background?
0: Okay, so when Truman, he wins, he's in, he, he experiences election night uh, in Kansas City, in, in, you know, in Kansas City in independence among his home crowd. There's this huge to-do. I mean, it's, it's very exciting. Listen, a lot of people of that generation could say that they knew where they were on two occasions in their life. And that is when they found out about Pearl Harbor and when they learned the news of election 1948 that Truman, <laughs> it was a big deal. So in Truman's hometown, there's this huge celebration. And he gets on the train and he goes east and uh, he stops in St. Louis. And there he's given this uh, copy of the Chicago Tribune and he holds it up because the Chicago Tribune had printed the headline, Dewey defeats Truman. Right. And so he holds it up for the famous picture. And then he gets back and he goes to Washington. And David McCullough, Truman biographer, um, had said that this was the most, the biggest party that Washington had ever thrown, had ever seen. There's millions of people in this, in the street to see Truman's train come in. And the Washington Post hung a sign saying, you're invited to a crow banquet. And it was a saying at the time where if you said something and you're wrong, you ate crow. You ate so right. it, it was a, but a lot of the media had a lot to answer for. And there's a couple of reasons why this is really important to think about now. Mm. We're seeing a lot of polls now saying there's no way that Trump can win. I see that every day. The polls mm. are this and there are polls are that. Don't believe the polls. People mm. think that the polls are this and polls are that. Go out and vote. Vote, you know, who you think should win. Don't listen to pollsters but the other reason why this is interesting is because Truman made uh, claims at the time about that feel that resonate now because of the whole issue of fake news. He made a big speech, I think it was in Cleveland, but where he said, all of these newspaper reporters, all of these newspapers, all of these pollsters are saying I can't win. They're controlled by the same people that don't want me to win. So don't necessarily believe them. Go out and vote. And vote they did.
1: Uh, from John Zipper, uh, was Truman surprised that he won in 1948 kind of or did he believe in his campaign strategy? I think the answer to both is no and yes, right? So but in detail, he believed in his campaign strategy. He was one of the only ones, right?
0: Throughout the campaign. And this was some, one of the things that people shocked people because he lived on this train with these people for so long. They lived on this train. It was mm-hmm. not pleasant. There was no laundry. There were no showers. I think there was one shower aboard. It was mm-hmm. a very grueling, very difficult thing. And people were very shocked that there was only one person who insisted with complete confidence that he was going to win. And that was Truman because he had confidence in his strategy and confidence in his campaign. Did I answer that question? There was a second. Yes, part. Yes,
1: yes. Uh, the other part of it was, was he surprised that he won? But he, he, we had just told the story that he, 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 he always believed he was going to win, right?
0: He wasn't surprised. But there's this wonderful moment. It took a long time to get the polls. It's not like today where it's all electronic and computerized. Mm-hmm. So by the time he realized he had won, um, he shows up at his campaign headquarters at six o'clock in the morning and the place is people are exhausted. And he shuts himself in a room to call his wife. They didn't have cell phones. Obviously, there's no email. There's no texting. And there's a reporter named Robert Nixon who had been on the campaign trail the whole time and found out that Truman was there back in campaign co- headquarters. He had gone to sleep 10 minutes earlier. He shows up in his pajamas with a, an overcoat over the top. And the door, so he peeks in this door, and he sees Truman crying, talking to his wife,
1: mm-hmm. saying,
0: what? Yeah. It's a moving moment. That just Very says, moment. Yeah. he believe that he would win, but it was still a shocker.
1: Yeah, still a shock. So here's a, a good question for someone who's studied the whole election to make a decision on. It's from Kevin Reese. So, did Truman win it, or did Dewey and the GOP lose it? Where do you Excellent. come down on that issue?
0: Great question. The answer is both.
1: Uh huh. It took um, both of them. One to be going down, one to be going up, huh?
0: I think that um, through our chat today, um, I've expressed a lot about why Truman won. But one of the reasons why uh, Dewey lost is this very critical strategic decision that he made early in the campaign. Dewey ran uh, a campaign for, it was governor in 1940. My point is he ran these bunch of campaigns and he had run two attack campaigns and he had lost. And he had run two campaigns for governor where they were not attack campaigns. They were at a very high level, not engaging, a lot of rhetoric, and he had won. So he had decided to run this very high-end, very poetic campaign wrapped around a term called unity. The whole campaign was based on unity. So he never attacked Truman, barely mentioned Truman's name, spoke nothing on any of the issues, because he believed that he was gonna get in the White House. So if he if he made commitments to issues, he'd be ham tied when he got to the White House. Mm-hmm. So he made no commitments and he just gave speech after speech after speech about and that was his campaign strategy and this failed mm-hmm. him desperately. And yeah. it, it was uh, it was not expected. So I think the answer to the question is both.
1: Oh, all right. From David Lloyd Jones, how come the most solidly read i.e Republican areas say are the ones that were most solidly progressive and had the highest E, v. Debs votes in previous generations. Can, so,
0: can you say that yeah, again?
1: Yeah, I'll, it's, it's about red areas. So uh, right now, they're solidly red Republican areas, but they were solidly progressive uh, in previous generations. Don't know whether right. that's accurate or not. Is that true?
0: Like what areas?
1: Yeah, he doesn't say. But uh, I, I would say he must mean uh, the Midwest and so on. But the, the Midwest at the time were progressive Republicans. I mean, the ones that, like Stassen and his... Uh, Party, I mean, his part of the Republican Party, uh, that, that was a Midwestern phenomenon. And, and they were in, in favor of all kinds of advances. Uh, I mean, they were all in favor, just as Dewey was, in terms of civil rights. But they were also in terms of environmental issues, cleaning up the water of the, of the Great Lakes, that kind of thing. So, so I'm not quite sure <laughs> what, 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 what that one can do. So we'll, we'll, we'll move on to another one. Here's an interesting one from Edward Kashmir. Is lack of a definite and certain result on election night harmful to public confidence in the democratic process, or does it help? In other words, in other words the fact that we don't know right away who won, is this a good thing or a bad thing?
0: Well, it's, 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 it, it means a very different thing now than it would have then. Because back then, it, it, the, the actual process of counting votes was very difficult, whereas today, it should be very clear cut. But I'm going to go ahead and say it's it's detrimental because I think it's really important that people have faith in the democratic process. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm hoping and praying we're coming up on a big election. This is right. a, a very historic moment for our country. And both sides really obviously believe that they are right. And both sides believe that they're going to win. And I think that if there's an election result that's not decisive, it's not going to help us.
1: Not going to help us, No.
0: No. And, and unfortunately, there's all sorts of technology involved. And if it's one thing I hope for in, in November of, of this year, it's just that uh, our democratic process and our voting process works. So whatever happens, we can accept it and say, hey, this is a democratic process. This is the result of an election that worked, that's lawful, and we, we can get down to business
1: gave a lecture after the 2004 uh, election with George W. Bush here in San Francisco, where of course most people are democratic. And uh, the title was, Do We Really Believe in Democracy? I asked people, okay, so that was a very emotional election. Did did everyone, did any, uh, did all of you have a, a strong emotional reaction to it? Everyone did. I said, so how many were elated? There were like three little old ladies that were very happy about the election. I said, so the rest of you are not so happy, right? I said, well, how about, how many of you had this experience? The person you voted for lost, but you were very happy that the democratic process won again and the majority came through. And everyone goes, what are you talking about? Uh, I mean, there's nobody that kind of reacts other than people who read history and everything to emotionally to the democratic process, which I think is another reason why. It has to be clear and not muddled, not like Florida with the hanging chads, not, like the, you know, not, not where the uncertainty is, did it get stolen? Because we, we have plenty of, most people know about Illinois in 1960 and other, uh, other things that are fairly clear that it doesn't seem like the person who ended up being president, which is a crucial thing, was the one who got the most uh, elections. Here's another, one last question. Kevin Reese, would, have a, would another GOP candidate have beat Truman, say Taft? Do you think Taft could have beaten Truman?
0: Okay, that's a great question.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, I have no idea, but I can tell you this: um, there were a lot of Monday morning quarterbacks after nineteen forty-eight. Uh, Richard Nixon firmly believed that if Harold Stassen was the was the candidate, he would have won. A lot of people said that if Taft had been the candidate, he would have won because there would have been a very clear division between this side and this side. So, you know, it's, it's a it's a very interesting question. Obviously, we don't know. And that, but along those same lines is. The question I'm often asked is what would have happened if Dewey won, if the Republicans had pulled out this election? And I think that, um, I honestly think Dewey would have been a terrific two-term president. He would have been a a wonderful president. Things might not have been that different in many ways than they turned out. He just would have been a different person uh, administering them. One thing that uh, came up recently in conversation is whether the whole McCarthy era would have happened if Dewey was president. And that's a really interesting question. This came out at a talk I had a couple of days ago because mm-hmm. I was with Larry Ty, the great biographer, who just came out with this wonderful new biography of, of McCarthy. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a really critical issue because Truman had a hard time. Everybody had a hard time standing up to McCarthy. But Dewey was a prosecutor and a lawyer. He mm-hmm. would have took him apart and put an end to that quickly, I think.
1: Well, in that, in that context, uh, Eisenhower... Uh was up for grabs by both parties in 1948, decided not to run. But he did meet with Dewey, as you have a story in there. And, and Eisenhower kind of slid into that role in 52 and became the Republican two-term vice uh, president that Dewey, you think, could have been or about the same, something like that, right?
0: Well, that's right. It's really interesting. When, when Dewey, the first thing he did um, to begin his campaign, everybody wanted Eisenhower to run in the Democratic ticket because they're like, well, the, no way Harry Truman could win. Let's get Eisenhower. He's a right. military figure. He doesn't belong to any party. Let's get him to run as Democrat. He refuses. And everybody's wondering, okay, Eisenhower has no political party. And soon after that, he appears in this very calculated photo op with Dewey. And that's when he sort of commits himself to the Republican Party.
1: Yeah, good timing. So I'll, I'll finish up here with one comment from one other, uh, of our listeners, John Jones. He said... Uh, he thinks it's because Truman had an unshakable faith and great integrity, and he couldn't have had anything to do with corruption and never did. And that's why he eventually is considered a great president.
0: Truman, When Truman left office, he had a miserable uh, approval rating. Why is it today that Democrats love Truman? Why is it today that Republicans love Truman? You will hear Donald Trump quote Truman. You will hear Nancy Pelosi quote Truman. You'll hear Judge Roy Moore quote Truman. Why do they all hold him to this Standard, And I think that if you, you know, for me, that the story of the 1948 election really answers a question, that question, because here is a man who's abso- such an absolute patriot, such a, a courageous man, honor, decency, but most of all fighting for what he believed to be the right thing for our country. So that, that's, I think, that, that sums it up for me.
1: Yeah. And it, it, there, there did not seem to be any disconnect between what he said and what he did, right. um, which, you know, is, is a rare in a politician. So thanks for writing another great book on on Truman. And thanks to our audience. Uh, So ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 118th year of enlightened discussion. Thanks for joining us virtually once again.
0: You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you.